Hello, this is Lisa, CEO of Site for White, welcoming you to this week's Talking News on Friday the 26th of January 2024. This week I'm delighted to say that we've got the newsletter all published and it's been sent off to be printed and we'll be with you within the next couple of weeks. Also this week, we welcomed the coffee morning as usual on Wednesday when we talked about an up-and-coming event on the 12th of March. We have been invited to the new Newport Health and Wellbeing Centre on the 12th of March to talk about accessibility and how changes can be made to the centre to accommodate people living with a vision impairment. If you'd like to join this event, please don't hesitate to call Lisa on 5222-05 and we can put your name down to attend. It is the 12th of March at 10am. Hoping everybody's staying safe in this somewhat stormy weather. Thank you, Lisa, CEO, Site for White. Here is this week's charity news, 19th of January, 2024. Monday swimming is at Medina between 1.15 and 2.15pm. We have the whole use of the pool and the cost is £6. Transport is available if required. This is for people who want to swim lengths or just for gentle exercise in the water. Yoga is on Tuesday at Millbrook House between 1.45 and 2.45pm. The cost is £4 and includes refreshments. Our weekly coffee and chat resumes on Wednesday at Millbrook House between 10 and 11.30. The total cost is £2, which includes coffee and cake. Staff are always on hand to help with any inquiries and equipment will be available to try out. Thursday is Mix and Mingle. This group meets between half past 10 and 2 p.m. Booking for this group is essential and at the moment there is a waiting list for people to join. Our book group is meeting on Thursday in the Newport Library. This group is free to join and if you would like to listen to books and would like to discuss it within a group environment, then this is a group for you. The group meets between 2 p.m. and 3 p.m. on the first Thursday of each month. Our befriending service has space for members who would like a call, perhaps weekly, fortnightly or monthly. If you would be interested in receiving a friendly chat with one of our lovely volunteers, please do not hesitate to call this office. We are now looking for knitters to start knitting our Easter items. So, if you know anyone who knits and would like something to do during these cold winter days, please let Susan know and she will send out patterns, etc. We also have a limited amount of wool available. Also, if anyone knows a company who would be willing to donate a few cream eggs to help with the fundraising, Susan would love to hear. Our monthly 100 club has spare balls available. If anyone would like to buy a ball, it is £2 per month or £20 for the full year. The more balls in draw, 
the higher the prize money each month. If you'd like to take part in our monthly draw, please call the office. This is part of our fundraising activities. If you would like to join any activity or want more details, please call the office on 522205. This is Alison reading an article from the Island Echo entitled Whitelink made £16 million profit in last financial year after 10% revenue growth. Whitelink made a profit of £16 million in the financial year to March 2023, according to the company's latest financial figures. The cross-Solent operator published its accounts, which are available on Company's House on the 8th of January covering the period from April 2022 to March 2023. The books show that revenue increased by 10.8% year-on-year to £78 million, but profits fell from £18.9 million to £16 million due to higher costs. The highest paid director, who is unnamed, took home £398,000, with a further £285,000 paid out to other directors. A dividend of £10 million was proposed to be paid in June last year, despite Whitelink taking a Covid rescue grant from the government. Away from the finances, the accounts report that the total number of sailings carried out by Whitelink in the year to March 2023 rose by 7.5%, with the company's market share also increasing to 62.1%, growth of 1.3%. Arca Topco Limited is the top-level company in the group which reports overall debts of £263 million. It is controlled by Eagle Crest Marine Bidco Limited and Basalt Infrastructure Partners, LLP. Carisbrook and Medina Colleges set to disband and go separate ways from Isle of Wight Radio. This is Chris, sorry. Carisbrook College and Medina College, collectively known as the Isle of Wight Education Federation, IWEF, have announced they will be disbanding their formal joint federation. The move will see them focusing on running as separate schools. They will continue to work closely together as part of a family of schools on the island. This approach, they say, will not adversely affect the day-to-day experience of students and parents other than meaning their transformation into Ofsted-rated good schools will be continued and individual focus. Matthew Parr Berman, executive head teacher of the current federation, said, Despite all the work of leaders and staff here, Neither school has made the necessary jump to become an Ofsted-rated good school. We owe it to the hundreds of students who are here to transform the schools. If we keep doing the same thing, we will get the same result. So we need to change our path. Richard Bridgeford, 
chair of governors of the current federation, added, Our federation has been together for over 12 years. It is now moving to the next phase in its journey, and our governors are fully behind this exciting move. The students here deserve the best, and this change now means we will be in a stronger position to move to the next level. This is an article from Isle of Wight Radio, read by Terry. Key workers to benefit from Newport residential property proposal. 200 new flats and houses, including some specifically built for key workers, could be built on the outskirts of Newport if the Isle of Wight Council gives a major scheme the thumbs up, well, last Tuesday in fact. The plans for Acorn Farm on Horsebridge Hill have been put forward by island developers Captiva Homes and Partners Sovereign Network Group. The Isle of Wight Council's planning committee could agree to the scheme, which would see 131 houses and 72 flats built on the Greenfield site. If planning permission is granted, the housing company could receive £30 million from the government to make all properties affordable. Officers are recommending the development be approved after local councillor Andrew Garrett requested the planning committee make the final decision. The planning officers say in its recommendation report the proposed development would provide much-needed housing within an area of existing residential development in a highly sustainable location. Overall, 21 conditions could be attached to the permission, setting constraints about drainage, landscaping, highways and parking. Newport and Carisbrook Community Council has supported the plans but also raised concerns about issues including pedestrian safety. A further 14 objections have been submitted, saying the development would create additional traffic on the strategic route and add to the congestion. Council officers have said while there would be an increase in traffic, with appropriate mitigation, it would not have an unacceptable impact on highway safety. A new access to the site could be created with traffic lights, which would be triggered when a car is waiting to enter or leave. The highway on Horsebridge Hill could be widened to allow a left-hand turn coming into Newport and create space for cars to pass those waiting to turn right on the way into cows. A 30 mile an hour speed limit is proposed for the main highway. There were fears the development would urbanise the rural area, but council officers said While the site is an open field, it only has a semi-rural feel to it due to the residential properties around it. 
Island Roads has not objected to the main highways aspect of the development, but said the proposed multi-use path from the site to Dotna Lane, which would lead onto the existing Newport to Cowes cycle route, should prioritise pedestrians and cyclists. Hello, this is Pauline, sitting, or should I say standing, in reading an article from the Island Echo um, in place of Brian, who's not here today. From the Island Echo, white link to introduce check in gates on fast cat route. Foot passengers travelling on White Link's fast cat service will soon be met with a new way to check in for travel. White Link is introducing check-in gates at its Ride Pierhead and Portsmouth Harbour terminals. From March, customers will be able to scan their own ticket at the new check-in gates, eliminating the need for a staff member to manually scan each ticket during the boarding process. It's said that this new way of travelling will make the service easier and quicker to use. An e-ticket or pass, QR code, paper ticket or pass will still be required and can be, can be booked in advance or on the day from the self-service ticket machine or at the customer service point. Whitelink has confirmed that all port facilities will still be available after check-in and staff will still be on hand for those who require assistance. This is Alison reading an article from Isle of Wight Radio entitled... Faulty Towers plans to revamp former Ventnor Hotel hit the skids. Plans to turn a former Isle of Wight hotel into a house have been halted. It comes as plans to demolish part of Ventnor Towers Hotel on Madeira Road and change it into a private residence were withdrawn from the Isle of Wight Council's consideration. The move was made on Friday, January the 19th, although no reason has yet been given as to why. The plans were put forward by the hotel's owner, Paul Clark of HGE Limited, who bought the property at auction in 2021. The sale did not meet the £700,000 guide price hoped for. In planning documents submitted to the council, it had been said the property was in very poor condition and in a state of decline. The hotel had been described on review websites as Faulty Towers meets the Overlook Hotel from The Shining and Mildly Terrifying. The hotel has not operated for years. Allowing the change of use to residential, it was argued, would secure the future of the local landmark building. The current condition of the 30-bed hotel means it would not be economically viable to reopen the hotel due to the extensive works and modernisation needed. Instead, it was hoped it could be restored back to its original use as built in 1872 as a house. It could have a gym, games room and at least six bedrooms. To make it one house, extensions built at various stages of the hotel's popularity would be demolished. One nearby resident objected to the plans as their property could become overlooked and impose on their privacy. Ventnor Town Council strongly supported the application stating it would bring the building back to its original state and improve the visual amenity of the area. 
The hotel used to be part of the Best Western chain. This is Chris reading an article from the Island Echo. Think Bike Awareness Campaign Gathers Pace with New Signs Erected. An important message to motorists to think about cyclists and motorcyclists when travelling on the island's roads is being reinforced thanks to the installation of new Think Bike signs. A total of 10 signs have been erected on key routes in the Newport, Cowes and East Cowes areas, thanks to the cycle group Cycle White. It was around two years ago that Cycle White's Peter Dyer first saw similar signs in Portsmouth and the New Forest, prompting an idea to explore the options for erecting safety signs here on the island. In recent years, there have been a number of serious and fatal collisions involving bicycles and motorcycles, prompting an extra need for an awareness campaign. Working with the Isle of Wight Council's road safety officer, Lewis Campbell, Cycle White was able to develop the initiative and gain sponsorship from cross-Solent ferry operator Red Funnel. After receiving approval from both the Department for Transport and the local authority, the first signs were erected near the GKN roundabout in East Cowes back in May last year. Now, thanks to the continued support of Red Funnel, slightly larger signs have been put in place on the approaches to Whippingham Roundabout, as well as the cycle crossing at Fairley Road and on approaches to Somerton Roundabout in Cowes. There is strong support for the rollout of further signs to other areas on the island, with Cycle White now seeking further sponsorship from local businesses. This is an article from the Island Echo, read by Terry. Ride Fire Station to become whole time as service battles resilience challenges. Ride Fire Station is set to become a whole time station in the future, operating 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, as Hampshire and Isle of Wight Fire and Rescue Service battles against resilience challenges on the island. It has been announced that the service is conducting a risk review of its operations here to identify how it can best meet the evolving and unique needs and risks of the Isle of Wight now and in the future. The in-depth analysis will explore what investment is needed to keep stations fit for purpose and the challenges around the availability of firefighters, something that has been a particular issue with Bembridge and Yarmouth in recent years. Once complete, consultations will be held on any proposals that come about as a result of the review. It's unclear at this early stage if this is likely to lead to station closures. Ahead of the review being completed, the decision has been made to invest in more full-time firefighters at Ride to ensure the station can provide an immediate response to incidents at all times. It is already recognised 
that a lack of available pumps is a real risk, especially with no firefighters at all at Bembridge. Currently, the station is day-crewed between 7 o'clock in the morning and 7 o'clock in the evening, seven days a week, a step up from the 9 till 5, five days a week, cover previously provided. However, in the near future it will be manned by firefighters 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The only hold-time station on the island currently is Newport. A multi-million pound investment is also being made in the island's stations, including upgrades to Newport and Ryde to create modern and fit-for-purpose workplaces, including improvements to contamination management and inclusive welfare facilities for crews. Island Echo understands a number of new Volvo fire appliances are set to arrive on the island in due course, as Hampshire looks to move away from the Scania's and Mercedes commissioned under Isle of Wight Fire and Rescue Service. Neil Odin, Chief Fire Officer for HIWFRS, has said, Everything we do as a fire service is risk-based and about keeping our staff and communities safe. We must always ensure we have the most appropriate resources to meet the risks we face and that we are spending public money most effectively. The island is unique in many ways and asking for the views of our communities, staff and partners is an important part of this review process. We will be sharing any proposals for changes and the feedback we receive will help inform any decisions. So, please get involved. This is Alison reading an article from the Isle of Wight Radio entitled... Council Tax Support Scheme Fund Scrapped with Vulnerable Island Residents Worst Affected An exceptional hardship fund has been scrapped to make way for a higher discount on council tax, hitting some of the most vulnerable Isle of Wight residents in the pocket. It has been claimed by supporters of the change that the hardship fund application process is difficult and degrading and that redesignating the cash will mean greater all-round support. Last night, Wednesday, councillors battled with their heads and their hearts as they considered the future of the Local Council Tax Support LCTS scheme. The scheme helps islanders on low incomes and those in receipt of certain benefits by providing a discount on council tax bills. At a vote, 22 councillors supported increasing the amount paid out by the LCTS by 5% and scrapping the hardship fund to pay for the rise. Meanwhile, 14 councillors opposed the plan, while one abstained. 
As a result of last night's vote, from April 2024, some residents, 9,947 people in 2022-23, will pay 25% of their council tax bill, rather than 30%, with the Isle of Wight Council paying the rest. It means the cash-strapped local authority will now have to find an extra £366,000 to fund the 5% difference in the 2024-25 budget. The Exceptional Hardship Fund further helps those eligible for the LCTS scheme who are facing additional genuine hardship. The discretionary fund pays even more of an individual's council tax. There have already been 150 successful claims in 2023-24, totalling £44,300. A further 121 claims were not approved for the extra hardship payment. Leading Cabinet members had recommended the LCTS scheme continue to cover 70% of eligible bills to prevent cuts to other council services. However, Councillor Claire Mosdell, leader of the Conservative Group, proposed scrapping the Exceptional Hardship Fund, instead using the money to ensure a higher percentage, 75%, is covered by the LCTS payment. She said filling in the forms for the hardship fund is difficult, degrading and means a loss of dignity, arguing it is hard to successfully claim cash from the hardly ever used pot. Councillor Andrew Garrett said Councillor Mosdell's proposal had presented him with a challenge, saying the money could be found by putting a premium on second homeowners instead, and he pledged to try to find a way to replace the lost fund. He voted in favour of the change. Councillor Ian Stevens, Cabinet Member for Finance, said County Hall must consider its overall financial position, adding it had already been hit with unavoidable funding pressures and must find £3 million of savings in 2024-25. He voted against the proposal. Speaking of her shock at the proposal, Councillor Julie Jones-Evans said council costs have been going up and up and up, while funding has been going down and down and down, and warned against agreeing policy made on the hoof. This is Chris, reading an article from Isle of Wight Radio. Latest Isle of Wight trading standards warnings issued, including white fibre, Facebook and lottery scams. Trading Standards has issued its latest scams for the Isle of Wight. Here are details of the latest warnings to be aware of. No yoke, Y-O-L-K, with Facebook community pages. One of our partners has shared a scam Facebook post that was believed to be genuine and added to a local group Facebook page offering eggs for sale. We have no idea how the scam works, but on doing some research, 
This post has appeared in similar groups all over the country. That's a large delivery route. If you are admin for a Facebook group, please try to do what you can to check that these types of posts and also those that appear to be arranging events and looking for traders are from a genuine source. Waste collection emails. A resident has said she recently received a scam email telling her that she now needed to pay £10 per month for her waste collection service. Luckily, she spotted this as a scam and has reported it. Your weekly bin collection is a free service and you should not pay any extra on top. This doesn't include the fortnightly garden waste collection, which is paid for which is a paid-for service through the Isle of Wight Council. Scam local calls. Another resident has reported a scam call from an Isle of Wight number 01983 purporting to be her bank. Your bank will never call you out of the blue. If you are unsure, hang up. Wait 15 minutes and phone 159 and select the number of your bank and they will be able to confirm if the call was genuine. Rogue traders. Be aware that rogue traders are back on the island. Do not engage with anyone who knocks your door and offers to carry out work for you, no matter how desperate you may be. This will nearly always end in extortionate prices, despite the initial quote, and be a poor job, often leaving you with bigger problems than you started with. Doorstep traders. The doorstep traders are also calling and offering to buy vans or motorhomes. This is a scam. If you are thinking of selling a vehicle, do it on your terms and not to somebody who has knocked on your door. National Lottery. One gentleman has received a letter giving him 10 free lines in the UK National Lottery. You will then be pressured to sign up to a monthly payment. Do not respond to this letter. At the very least, you will be harassed constantly and your information sold. Fake White Fibre. White Fibre has shared that one of their customers was nearly scammed by a company purporting to be White Fibre Milton Keynes. They told the customer they had made a premium rate call and had to pay or they would be cut off. Luckily, the bank stopped the payment. White Fibre only operate on the island and has a local call centre. So, if you ever receive communication like this, speak to them before making any payments. Delivery scam. Lots of reports have come in saying that the delivery scam is rearing its ugly head again. Emails claiming to be from every advise they had tried to deliver a parcel and you now need to give your bank details to pay the £1.29 re-delivery charge. If in doubt, check the sender's email address. It won't be genuine. This is an article from the Island Echo, read by Terry. MP criticises council 
for putting off school closures until after local elections. Isle of Wight MP Bob Seeley has slammed Alliance councillors for disgracefully delaying decisions about school place planning until after the council elections next year, stating that delaying decision-making until 2025 puts unviable schools at risk of financial failure. On the 23rd of November last year, the new Alliance Council Cabinet Member for Children's Services, that's Jonathan Bacon, announced that he would reverse the Council's work on school place planning and delay the closure of unviable primary schools on the island until autumn 2025. The island's MP, who has written to all members of the Isle of Wight Council, says that the Alliance group, supported by Independent, Labour, Lib Dems and Greens, are simply refusing to listen to senior teachers. Mr Seeley has raised the issue with the Education Secretary and Department for Education officials. Speaking this week, Bob has said, Yet again, Alliance councillors are refusing to listen to senior teachers. Delaying decisions on school closures puts all schools under pressure and racks up school debt at a time when teachers need to be supported in driving up school standards. There were 213 vacant reception places in the year 2022-23. Because of this, it was recommended that three primary schools should close, along with Chillerton. The Alliance's decision has reversed both officers' recommendations and the information submitted by head teachers and school governors. The Alliance Council's decision to delay place planning by another academic year means that Island Primary Schools will receive around £850,000 less funding for education than if reception places were at capacity. The decision strips funding from more viable schools. Entering all schools into a new process of place planning has raised unnecessary concerns in schools. It will provide a completely unnecessary distraction for senior teachers when they need to be focusing on delivering education and raising standards in our schools, especially when it comes to phonics and in brackets he put reading. What the Alliance is doing has delayed necessary change, caused unnecessary problems and denied funding to schools and school children. From the Isle of Wight Radio, heavy long-term Isle of Wight Council loan debts revealed. The Isle of Wight Council carries long-term loan debts to the equivalent of more than £1,000 per islander, latest figures have revealed. At the end of 2023, the Isle of Wight Council owed £162.9 million in long-term loans, around 1156 per islander. The amount is calculated by dividing the Council's total debt by the number of people who live here, 
based on the Office for National Statistics entire island population data. Some debt dates back to the 1990s when the authority took out long-term loans and continues to pay back the borrowed cash. A spokesperson for the Isle of Wight Council said the money has been invested in essential capital projects, acquisitions and other investments not spent on day-to-day services. The total amount of long-term debt has fallen over the last six months because a £5 million bank loan has been paid off, saving the authority about £76,000 a year. More than 30 historic long-term loans came through the Public Works Loan Board, PWLB, an arm of the Treasury. As of March 2023, County Hall was paying off eight loans dating to the 1990s, 17 from the 2000s and nine taken up between 2016 and 2020, according to figures from the PWLB. Some of the loans will mature this year, while others will take a further three decades. The longest loan repayment will run until 2055. No new long-term PWLB loans have been taken out since March 2020. Any future borrowing would have to meet stringent rules with costs covered by offset income or savings, said a spokesperson for County Hall. A government spokesperson for the Department for Leveling Up, Housing and Communities said councils are ultimately responsible for their own finances, but it is very clear they should not put taxpayers' money at risk by taking on excessive debt. The local government association, LGA, which represents authorities across the country, has called for the government to come up with a long-term plan to, f- to sufficiently fund local services. A spokesperson for the LGA said councils have faced a choice of either accepting funding reductions and cutting services or making investments to try and protect them. This was an approach this was an approach that was encouraged by the government. A national investigation by the BBC Shared Data Unit revealed how much debt local councils are in, reporting a staggering UK-wide 966 billion pounds as of September 2023, averaging out, averaging, averaging out 1,455 pounds per person. Woking Borough Council has the highest accumulated debt, standing at nearly two billion pounds and equating to around 18,750 pounds per resident. And from the Island Echo, 200 new homes to be built off Horsebridge Hill over the next three years. Benbridge-based Captiva Homes has been given the green light to build the largest affordable housing development on the Isle of Wight in a decade in partnership with Sovereign Network Group. Properties at Acorn Farm on Horsebridge Hill are expected to be delivered over the next three years for both islanders on the Isle of Wight Council's housing register and key workers. A partnership between Captiva Homes and Sovereign Network Group is behind the plan for 131 houses and 72 flats. A new play park will also be included in the development. The proposal has pledged all the flats would be affordable and the houses would be sold at market price. But £30 million in government funding now means the entire development will be available for a lower than market value price or socially rented. Members of the Isle of Wight Council's Planning Committee approved the plans on Tuesday night. Councillor Chris 
work called it the sort of development the island needs. Councillor Andrew Garrett for Parkus and Honeyhill said it was regrettable a greenfield site would be used, but added the scheme was more than sufficiently adequate. However, he highlighted concerns about the impact of increased traffic on Horsebridge Hill, calling for the future of the Newport to Cowes route to be considered by the Isle of Wight Council. Good morning, this is Gerard. And this is Imelda. And today we are reading the paper, obviously. And the first thing is spike in missing items at a hospital. Jewellery and hearing aids vanish. There has been a huge rise in reports of belongings going missing from patients at St Mary's Hospital. In 2023, there were 2019 reports of missing items, included compared with 84 reports in 2022, a rise of around 260%. A Freedom of Information request by the County Press has revealed the most common items to go missing include jewellery and clothing. Figures show 140 items of jewellery disappeared in the past three years, including 67 last year, 41 in 2022 and 32 the year before. In total, there have been 330 reports of missing, disappearing from hospitals over the past three years. Responding, the Isle of Wight National Health Trust said losing personal items can be distressing and it reminded patients of the importance of looking after their belongings. It says patients are advised not to bring any valuables into the hospital. And it continues with... Since 2021, St Mary's Hospital has seen a year-on-year increase in reports of personal possessions disappearing. In 2021, when strict COVID-19 restrictions were in place, there were 27 reports. There were also 93 reports of clothing going missing. Other patients belonging to have uh, be other patients' belongings to have disappeared include glasses, dentures, and hearing aid. One islander told the county press his mum's hearing aids went missing while she was in the emergency department in November 2022. He said he raised concerns with staff member and called for something to be done to safeguard patients' items. Patients can't be responsible for their belongings when they're not 100% fit, he said. Of the reports received, the Trust said 193 of them were investigated. It received more than 33 claims for items over £50 and 11 claims for belongings under £50. It added not all investigations Not all investigations had resulted in a claim, and this could be because there is not enough evidence for one to be made, or the patients did not wish to take it further, adding that there were over 26,000 people admitted, and the majority of patients left with all their personal belongings. When items do get lost, National Health Service equivalent replacements are offered where possible. 
A spokesperson said, We recognise losing personal items can impact a person's comfort and recovery and staff do their absolute best to ensure they are looked after and remain with the patient. Patients are advised not to bring any valuables into the hospital and reminded of the policy for patients, property and the improvement of of looking after their personal belongings. Items of value should be handed to a relative for safekeeping or can be stored securely on the ward or at the cashier's office if necessary. The county press asked whether any staff had faced an investigation, disciplinary proceedings or lost their jobs in relation to items going missing. The Trust Freedom of Information team said it would not provide an answer as the information constitutes personal records. Fewer than half of the items reported missing between 2021 and 2023 were returned to patients, the Trust confirms. A road not in danger of collapse. There is nothing to suggest that Alawite Military Road is in danger of collapse, Island Roads has said. After land movement saw a void appear and closed a footpath. According to the firm, a survey carried out earlier this month showed there were no signs of movement to the highway. A previously reported As previously reported, the Alawite Council closed a footpath adjacent to the road over safety concerns. Council leader, Councillor Phil Jordan, told the county press it was too early to say what it means for the future of the road itself. He said, the current phase is very much assess and monitor the void and intervene if needed, possible and sensible and safe to do so. Now, Island Roads has said boreholes in the roads are surveyed at least once a year and is monitoring it for further movement. It said they were checked in October last year and at the beginning of the year in response to the void opening. A spokesperson said no signs of movement to the highway were detected during the January survey. Monitoring equipment placed on the cliffside of the road also provides hourly data. This has recorded the recent movement, but again, there is nothing to suggest an imminent danger to the highway itself. We will, of course, continue to monitor the area and will liaise closely with the Alawite Council to ensure all steps are taken to maintain a safe road network. Island Roads said in 2004 a retaining wall was built and buried so it did not detract from the natural beauty of the area. It is designed to protect the road from erosion for around 50 years. There are photos of the military road 
in the county press. Jobs hopes with new delivery depot. Land at Whippington could be sold and more jobs could be created after plans for a new package delivery warehouse were given the green light by councillors. Following a surge in online shopping, Isle of Wight distribution will expand to Whippingham Technology Park, creating what Agent Phil Salmon called a fundamentally important piece of logistic transport infrastructure. The new base will have a parcel collection office for customers. The Isle of Wight Council-owned land on the main road into East Cows has been earmarked for employment opportunities since the Technology Park was first approved in 2011. County Hall could sell the plot to Isle of Wight distribution later this year. The fields adjacent to GKN stood empty until 2016, when the arrival of the Isle of Wight College's CECAMM Centre became the first development. At a meeting of the Isle of Wight Council Planning Committee on Tuesday, January the 25th, Mr Salmon said the firm's current distribution centre in Merston was not fit for purpose and did not give an easy connection to ferry routes. The Isle of Wight Distribution Management Director, Anthony Flood, told the committee the company delivers between 7,500 and 10,000 parcels a day across the island, depending on the time of year, and it works for multinational companies like Yodel, DHL and Parcel Force. Since it opened in 1999, Mr Flood said the company has expanded, buying Acclaim Logistics in 2021, and now with a mainland base to sort and hold the parcels coming over to the island. Around 130 staff are employed on the island, but it hopes to grow that number up to 200, he said. Members of County Hall's planning committee unanimously approved the proposal. The plans are the first phase of Isle of Wight's distribution development at the Technology Park, with proposals to build a second large warehouse behind the first, which is yet to go before decision-makers. Planning documents say four 40-foot lorries would arrive each day, along with 32 parcel delivery vans. Speaking after the meeting, Mr Flood said... No decision has been made about the future use of the Merston site and hopeful builders would be on site in Whippingham by Easter. New laundrette plan for former Cows Cafe. A laundrette empire could expand, taking over a former cafe space in Cows. What used to be the Watch House Barn Cafe on the High Street could soon become a hub for washing and drying under new plans lodged by Dave Thakra. Mr Thakra owns a change of laundrettes across the island, including in Ventnor, Freshwater, Newport and Ride. 
Now he's hoping to add a branch on the corner of Bath Road and Watch House Lane. The cafe that used to be there suffered a fire in 2020 and closed in the following year. In December, the building sold at auction with Clive Empson for £196,000. The auctioneers said the premises, which also has residential accommodation upstairs, needs upgrading and refurbishing, and there is some fire damage present. Under the plans, the laundrette would be installed on the ground floor and have six washing machines and four dryers. Opening hours are proposed to be from 6 a.m. to 11 p.m. The plans can be viewed online on the Allowide Planning Register. Comments can be made until the 23rd of February. Residents rocked by news nursing home will close. A Ventnor nursing home has announced it will close, which means its 18 older and vulnerable residents will have to find somewhere else to live. When Wardhouse Nursing Home on Alpine Road revealed the shock news this week, it said it was with a heavy heart. In a post, it said all residents under its care were being assessed and alternative placements were being identified. We will continue to provide care for residents' safety until their transfer. From all the staff, we have been honoured to be part of their lives and wish them and their families and friends the very best, he said. The Isle of Wight Council confirmed that it was informed of the decision on January the 11th. A council spokesperson said it is working alongside the home to ensure residents and their families are aware of the closure and are supported. Representatives from the authority have met with the owners of Ward House, which is run by a company of the same name, Ward House Limited, registered in London. The County Hall spokesperson said a full review of residents' need will be undertaken as the first task involving their friends, their families and advocates. Once these reviews are completed, the Council will support all residents, including those it does not fund, to find suitable alternative provision where their identified needs can be met. This will be undertaken in a structured, coordinated and safely applied approach and will continue to support residents through this transition. Meanwhile, the Home Staff were told on January the 15th. A final closure date has not been confirmed. According to the Care Quality Commission, the nursing home was last visited in December 2022, where it was deemed to require improvement. There were current concerns over the safety of residents and the management of the home, but residents and their family members gave the care watchdog positive feedback and said staff were kind and caring. Wardhouse has been contacted for a statement. 
Settling In, New Home for Banned Breed Dog. Rescue Dog Pebbles, a two-and-a-half-year-old American XL bully, has settled in to her new home, the OSPCA has revealed. She was at the center of an urgent appeal at the end of December. Other animal charity fought to find her a forever place to live before new laws, new laws on rehoming and ownership came into force. A spokesperson said, It has been a huge team effort by so many, and our local community played a big part in sharing Pebbles' story. The support has been overwhelming. Thank you. A massive thank you to Pebbles' new owner, who has been amazing throughout the whole process and for opening their heart and home to this lovely girl. Isla White OSPCA has also thanked the Southbridge branch for its help in finding the perfect home, assisting in the adoption process and the ongoing care of Pebbles over the last months, a fundraiser to help support Pebbles' new owner. Watch link to caravan park attack. A stolen Cartier watch at the centre of a police appeal. It was taken during an aggravated burglary at a caravan park off Newport Road, Apps Heath, in the early hours of November the 2nd, Hampshire and Isle of Wight constabulary said. A man, aged in his 50s, was assaulted by a group of people during an incident, according to officers, who want to find anyone who may have been offered the watch for sale. Isle of Wight police said, We've been following up all lines of inquiry since this incident and continue to do so. We are keen to hear from anyone with information about the stolen watch. If you have any if you have ever been offered this item for sale, have bought it or have seen it for sale online, please get in touch. Contentious house plan signed off. Controversial plans for a housing development have been approved, but only after changes were made to the affordability of some of the proposed properties. 56 houses can now be built on the corner of Steen Road and Hillway Road in Bembridge after members of the Alawite Council Planning Committee gave them the thumbs up. 20 affordable properties, which can be defined as 20% below market value, would still cost around half a million pounds. And councillors prompting developer Thornwood Estates Alawite to agree to increase the discount to 25%. At a final vote, six councillors were in favour of the application with two against and two abstentions. Councillor Chris Quirk, who voted against the development, said it was difficult to see how the plan would deliver genuinely affordable houses for young islanders. 
Island Roads to Act Over Accident Black Spot. Island Roads insists it is actively engaged in trying to restore drainage issues at a location labelled an accident black spot by concerned residents. As the county press exclusively reported last week, there have been a series of crashes on Shanklin Road between God's Hill and Whitley Bank. Sanford neighbours Andrew Snart and Philip Nippard believe they are being caused by a constant stream of water running down Red Hill Lane and freezing in cold temperatures on Shanklin Road. They have seen their wall ploughed into on at least three separate occasions and called on something to be done to prevent a more serious collision. In a statement to the county press, Island Roads said it is aware of drainage issues in the area and has been taking to and has been talking to private landowners. A spokesperson said, Red Hill Lane is a cutting and as such there are higher banks on either side of the road. Groundwater issues from these banks and naturally uses the highway network as a conduit. We have been in communication with adjacent landowners to ensure that they are aware of their responsibilities when it comes to managing watercourses effectively. As a result, the land drainage provision on private land has been upgraded. Island Roads said it continues to pursue the matter with third parties as it accepts further ditch clearance are needed. It said it is focused on achieving a long-term solution and in the meantime is taking any short-term measures necessary. This has included the use of salt socks to mitigate the risk of freezing, regular gully, gully cleaning and the placement of warning signs, the spokesperson added. Red Hill Lane is not included on a treated gritting route through the winter months, and therefore, during the periods of freezing, motorists should drive according to the conditions. It's only a matter of time before there's a serious injury or a death, Phil, 71, warmed, blaming drains and gullies which have not been collecting water running down the road. Overnight, temperatures freeze and the water carries a sheet of ice. Drivers lose control on the bend and collide with the wall, he said. Andrew, 70, said, Probably items were first spotted in January 2020 when a car hit the wall and a tree. Verbal abuse in council called out. The way Alawite councillors talked to one another and to their staff was raised as county hall Signed up to the Local Government Authorities Debate Not Hate campaign. It has set out to tackle the normalization of abuse. Speaking at a meeting on Wednesday, the 17th of January, Councillor Matt Price cited what he called atrocious behavior in the council chamber including the way councillors have previously spoken to county hall employees. 
Councillor Price said, Some of it is inexcusable. Staff cannot answer back, but they have been spoken to in a disgraceful way. Councillor Julie Jones Evans revealed she had personally, t- personally been at the sharp end of abuse from fellow councillors. Councillor Karen Lucioni, who proposed the motion, said a national local government authority survey had revealed seven out of ten councillors had been abused or intimidated. She said that she said that was unacceptable and the result was it put people off standing to be a councillor in the first place. Councillor Claire Mosdell, leader of County Hall Conservatives Group, said she had hope the new campaign was not all fluff and flannel. Life becomes difficult with regular abuse. When it is reported to the council, there is no support, she said. You are told to expect it as a county councillor. It does not matter if it is making you ill. What are we doing to stop it? We need to have something like a standards board, as there is no punishment for this behaviour. I want to know what will be done to protect councillors and staff. Councillor Chris Jarman called for robust processes to be put in place to deal with the problem. He claimed previous allegations had not been dealt with in the way most would have expected. The National Local Government Authority campaign also aims to raise public awareness of the role of councillors in local communities and encourage healthy debate. Four cars in collision. A four-car crash closed the main road through Areton on Thursday near the Fighting Cocks pub on the A3056. Emergency crews were called to the scene at Hale Common at around 3.30pm. Firefighters from Ryde and Shanklin helped free a person from a vehicle after concerns for a female passenger with a possible spinal injury. The road was closed for a time. Speeding cut by two-thirds. The number of speeding motorists fell by almost two-thirds in December, compared to November, Hampshire and Alawite Constabulary has revealed. Last month's speed enforcement work carried out by officers from the Force Safe Road Unit caught 58 speeding drivers at 20 locations over 36 separate visits. In November, over 32 visits to 28 locations, 167 speeding motorists were caught. The Safer Roads Unit is part of the Force Wider Joint Operation Unit, JOU, which serves Hampshire, the Alawite, and the Thames Valley. The spokesperson said, We know poor driving standards, including speeding, 
or a concern to island residents, which is why we are publishing these regular updates so you can see a small snapshot of some of the work that goes into addressing this. Speeding is just one of the island motorists face on the road network. As we have a number of teams and other initiatives running to tackle the broader spectrum of offending to keep our roads safer. Speeding is one of the leading causes of serious and fatal injury collisions. So we are committed to taking proactive action to deter drivers from doing it. Meanwhile, in December, Christmas Drink Drive campaign, Operation Holy saw 39 arrests on the Aloe White, nearly double the previous year. Appeal to find missing bracelet as two are charged. Police investigating the theft of items belonging to footballers, including silver bracelet and a ring containing a lock of hair and the ashes of the player's father, have charged two men. Gavin Bugs of Barton Road, Newport, has been charged with fraud by false representation relating to the use of a bank card on January the 20th, the same day that police officers attended Shanklin Football Club. The 43-year-old was also charged with theft from a shop and using threatening, abusive words or behaviour on December the 11th at the co-op on Sundown High Street. It is alleged £18.65 pence worth of food was stolen. Kevin Greenwood, 44, of West Street in Ryde, has been charged with burglary and fraud by false representation relating to an incident at All Saints Church, Ryde, on December the 23rd, in which a rucksack went missing and a bank card was used. He was charged with a further count of fraud by false representation relating to the use of a bank card on January the 20th. Both have been remanded in custody to appear at Portsmouth Magistrates Court. Four Ventnor Reserve players reported items missing during their match against Shankling Reserves. A number of items were recovered but the bangle and ring are still missing. And if you can help police trying to find the items, call 101 and it asks you to quote 442-400-28711. So grateful that I had a little cry. A charity's winter fundraising campaign is supporting 100 families by giving them a £25 food voucher each. From my family to yours, the Kickstart with Homestart campaign supports struggling families with very young children by fresh food and essentials. Mom Laura is among those supported. She said, It was really unexpected to get, it, to get a voucher. To be honest, I had a little cry. It is just so difficult juggling everything at this time of the year. After the expense of Christmas, we were really struggling 
and knew that there was not enough money to cover all our bills. We are not a family who would ask for help, but to be given it was amazing. Just to know that other people or that kind in every is very overwhelming. Thank you. Alison Griffiths, scheme manager, said, At Home Start, we know how hard the winter months can be for families. We know £25 will not solve people's financial worries, but it will help parents to buy fresh food or essentials like nappies and milk. Visit the Alouette uh, site, Start with Home Start, to donate. New date for cancelled fireworks. After Sandown's New Year Day fireworks were cancelled due to circumstances beyond the organisers' control and as bad weather hit the island, a replacement date has been announced. On Easter Saturday, the Easter fireworks extravaganza will light up the skies over the seaside town. The display will be at Sandown Pier on 7.30 at 7.30 p.m. on Saturday, March the 30th, with viewing along the seafront. Storm Isha's winds raise a roof. Strong winds from Storm Isha sent a van roof flying onto Sandown Beach overnight on Sunday into Monday. Islander Karen Chapman Green spotted the unusual sight and posted on Facebook to say, If you lost the roof to your van, it's here. Strong winds and heavy rain swept across the Alawite, which was under an amber weather warning. Debris flew across the highway in some areas. While in ride on Upton Road, safety barriers installed for gas work were knocked down. Meanwhile, a supermarket was temporarily closed on Monday, the 22nd of January, after a storm Isha's high winds damaged its roofs. Little car park was blocked with wooden pellets and a sign reading, due to unforeseen circumstances, this store is closed. Apologies for any inconvenience caused. Repairs were made by the end of the day and the superstore reopened. The Met Office later confirmed the needle was in the top three for highest wind gusts overnight on Sunday. Gusts exceed 80 miles per hour and peaked at around 86 miles per hour. Only Capel Curig in North Wales at 90 miles per hour and Brisley Wood in Northumberland at 99 miles per hour recorded stronger winds during the storm. Ireland's best ride being refurbished. When a picture appeared on social media this week showing Robin Hill's iconic colossal ride on a ferry bound for the mainland, many feared the worst. It was assumed the photo was confirmation of the swinging boat leaving for good. Robin Hill itself is on the, on the property market, though 
through Savills for a guide price of 2.25 million. The picture showed the Roman style galley boat strapped to the back of a lorry, and islanders took to Facebook to share their memories of the ride. It has been a staple of the country park for around 24 years. It arrived here from Italy in March 2000 and was then described as the biggest and best ride on the island. The county press is happy to confirm the ferry photo did not show Colossus leaving for passengers new. In a statement, Vectis Ventures said, "The ship has gone to the mainland for refurbishment." Have you got a favourite photo or memory of Colossus? Email photo to editor at iwcp. co.uk or message us on Facebook or tag us on Instagram. Oyster regeneration project used to teach sustainability. An oyster regeneration project is teaching UKSA students about sustainability. The charity worked in partnership with Blue Marine Foundation. And Cows Harbour Commission to get the baskets and oysters stocked into the River Medina. The project will facilitate the release of millions of larvae into the Solent and provide refuge for other marine life, including endangered European eels, young seahorses, and sea bass. UKSA has now introduced sustain. Sustainability to all its NCFE outdoor and adventurous activities courses. Ben Willows, CEO, said, "A great start in making a difference in the marine environment we call home. The project is a step forward for sustainability on the island, and the students have such a local reference is fantastic." The first oysters were placed in baskets beneath UKSA's pontoons in in autumn, and the students will be checking on the oysters and the cages as well as measuring their growth. As eco as ecosystem engineers, the oysters will improve water quality. With a single oyster able to filter up to two hundred liters of water every day. And act as a natural defense to coastal erosion. Na- native oyster reefs in the UK have declined by 95 percent due to overfishing, pollution, disease, habitat loss, and other pressures. Windfall winners: White Aid has awarded £6,742 to eight different charities and organisations. Administrator Amy Underwood said, "The latest round of giving shows the diversity of organisation needing our support. We are delighted to have helped these eight groups. Sight for White received three thousand two hundred and forty-two pounds for a range of activities, including the project Be Wise to Your Eyes. 
AIM Autism included Inclusion Matters organised and ran autistic adults was granted £500 for bifold um, doors. A lot of other charities have been rewarded money for this from this association. Buried Tales of Poison and Kings Looking at some of the fascinating, long-forgotten churchyard tales from the Alawite, we start in Ride's main cemetery. Looking around, you may come across a memorial to Sam Brown, born in 1824. He rose to become General Sam Brown, V.C. He was awarded his Victoria Cross in, 19, in 1858 during a conflict in which he lost his left arm. This, however, did not deter him in his military service, but he had to overcome the fact that during military field, field manoeuvres he came across the problem of steadying his sword belt. How did he overcome this problem? By employing a shoulder strap and this and thus the Sam Brown belt came into being. From then on, and still today, all over the globe, the Sam Brown belt is used by their military forces. Also in Wright Cemetery is a tomb of Michael Maybrick. Born in 1844, he became mayor of Ryde, no less than five occasions. But Maybrick, in his former life, had another name, Stephen Adams. The professional name he used in his occupation as a composer. During the late 1880s, he had composed works such as The Holy City, 1892, The Maid of the Mill, 1896, and Nirvan, 1893. These compositions were worked upon along with lyrics, along with lyricist Frederick Weatherby, and together they were the Lennon-McCartney of the Victorian era. Maybrick did have a darker side to his life before he came to the island and he involved his brother James. James was said to have committed a murder by poisoning using arsenic and it is said his brother helped him escape justice by helping to throw guilt unjustly onto his sister-in-law who served a 15-year prison sentence. Adams named Maybrick, married, and then settled on the island to become a leading figure. Moving on, we come to St Boniface Church in Bonchurch, the story attached to one of the memorials within the churchyard is very unusual. An empty grave marks the burial burial place of George Clunis Ross king of the Coco Keeling Islands in the Indian Ocean. 
George was born in 1843 to become the third generation king of the Cocos, John Clooney's Ross. The first had set tide on the Cocos in 1827 along with his family and made himself ruler. George eventually inherited the kingdom in 1871, becoming Clunis Ross III. In 1886, Queen Victoria officially granted recognition of his kingship of the island. On a visit to England for medical treatment, Clunis Ross III was taken ill, dying in 1910 when staying in Ventnor. He was buried in the churchyard of St Boniface, but the story does not end there. In 1914, the Cocoa Islands requested the return of their king, so he was exhumed and returned to his kingdom. The Clunis family ruled for five generations, over 151 years. Their kingship in 1978 when the island was sold to Australia. If you look around the burial ground in the northwesterly park of the churchyard, you will find an empty grave inscribed with the name of George Clunis Ross, King of the Cocoa Islands. Another memorial worth a mention is that of the Reverend Adams, buried in Bonchurch in the 11th century old church. In 1843, Adams gave up his ministry and came to live in Winterbourne House in Bonchurch. Due to his ill health, feeling the mild climate and sea air would be a benefit. He laid the stone marking the building of the new parish church on Bonchurch Chute and left a legacy of written works on Christianity and faith. He most popular was the Old Men's Home, which proved a, a favourite of Wordsworth. Another of his works was The Shadow of the Cross. Adams died in 1848, and his grave is marked by a cross that permanently casts a shadow over his tomb. Finally, we come to, to something a little different. Just outside Newport, at the top of Honey Hill, there is a group of houses that were built about a couple of decades ago. For many years, this mysterious plot lay emptied, covered in weeds and long grass until the houses were built. Why had this, plant lay, this plot laid empty for so long when all around it were houses? The answer? It was an old Quaker burial ground and could not be built on for a determined period of time. And from my view, we have Matthew, Matthew Chatfield. It slip, 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 slipping away. It seems as though things are slipping away from us. And by things, I mean large bits of the island. The huge landslip at Bonchurch has shocked and saddened many, with other slips at Shorewell, Luckham and now the Military Road. It has been a season for land movement, and that has been memorable, to say the least. Anyone with more than a few years' experience of the island will know that landslips are a fact of life. 
While the extra rainfall caused by our changing climate can speed things up, all of these slips were sooner or later going to happen, and they are not new. Consider the immense landscape at Black Gang in 1928 that cut off Trail Green from Knighton, or the lost fishing village of Luckham, no longer accessible from the land view side at all. Even the beloved and now profoundly changed landscape of Bonchurch Landslip was formed, as the name may be very plain, from such an event. This euphemerality is part of the beauty and mystery of the island's landscape. While many of us are content to live with that, some are not. Discussions over any landslip event inevitably turn to restoration and engineering challenges. Indeed, sometimes this is appropriate. Few would suggest that the road from Newport to Shorewell should have been left closed this winter. It was no small job to clear it, but it was reopened, and with limited risk of recurrence, this seems prudent. Coastal landscapes, though, are different because of their inevitability. I recall working on plans for the road over Afton Down View in the late 2000s. The discussions then as now centred around whether the road could be kept, moved inland or abandoned. As it turned out, an an engineering solution allowed it to be kept, although at the cost of a substantial structure hidden beneath it, in which one day inevitably be exposed as the cliff falls. When this unattractive sculpture is revealed, and we can no longer get the benefit of driving over it, we may question the wisdom of that decision. A more serious consequence of our inability to accept this process is an ongoing waste of our money. I'm talking here about the Undercliff Drive. Closed by a landscape in 214, this scenic route has been maintained as an A-road ever since, despite it leading nowhere. A few years ago, the white lines and cat's eyes were even renewed. Anyone who has the courage to admit that the road is no longer a road, but an access drive to a few residents, and potential to be a delightful walk or ride for visitors. A fraction of the cost of the maintenance of that road would enable us to turn it into a linear country park with easy car access at both ends. If we can close libraries, pay areas and youth centres that are desperately needed, how about we close a road that isn't? Public information. MP concerned about schools and home education rates. Education is critical to the island's future. As some of you may be aware, I am having a run-in with a Alliance Council, a confused coalition kept in power by independents, Green, Greens, Lib Dems, and Labour. This article is by Bob Silly. A few Alliance councillors are good and most tried, but overall they are failing. 
our, they are failing our teachers, parents and children. There are three problems and they are getting an F for fail on each. First, primary school places. Second, reading standards. Third, homeschooled children. First school places, senior teachers have advised that for the good of all children, a few schools should shut. The Alliance have delayed closures until after council elections. In plain English, they are putting their re-election chances over the needs of children unacceptable. This dreadful decision increases debt, deprives good schools of funding, and means that schools have to spend time justifying themselves rather than focusing on standards. Second, the phonics reading system. England's phonics reading system is a success. Our kids are now amongst the world's best readers, part of the Tory education success story. Yet, on the island, we are bottom of the phonics tables, with seemingly little interest from left-wing councillors. So I stepped in, alerting officials in the Department of Education and agreeing two steps. First, we held a conference for all primary school last summer in Carisbrook. As a result, more schools sought support, five in September and a further four this month. Thank you to teachers for their vital work. Reading is at the heart of learning. Second, I am writing to eight more schools who have not had support. I have done so with the approval of expert and education officials. We need to make sure all our schools have the tools to teach reading well. Finally, homeschool. Homeschooling. Our rate of homeschooled children is three times the national average. Whilst I respect responsible parental choice, I worry, I worry a minority of children are not being taught and are drifting into depression, isolation or worse. Again, there appears little interest from the Alliance. So I and Police Commissioner Donna Jones are writing to the government. When councillors do the right thing, I'll say so. But right now the Alliance and their supporters need to raise their game. Letting down children and parents and refusing to listen to teachers is not acceptable. Now we're going on to what's on. And one thing that I've got here is the Ukrainian National Opera uh, presenting Carmen. The Phantom of the Opera is going to be on the, the Thursday the 15th and 16th, 17th, 18th and 23rd. And David Suchet is going to be reading Poirot and more. 
um, and the Shanklin Theatre tour. So I hope you can pick something up of all those things. The fairest pantu of them all. The white strollers are bringing the fairest pantu of them all into Medina Theatre this February, half term, with their production of Snow White, and you could win tickets to be there. Directed by Eliza Jones and with a cast of local island talent, the story of Snow White is one of fun, friendship, courage, and true love. It follows the beautiful Princess Snow, played by Madison Hall, as she faces the jealousy of her wicked stepmother, finds the man of her dreams, and has plenty of adventures with her friends along the way. The White Strollers, established in 1980, following the retirement of dance teacher Nesta Meech, are renowned for their annual pantomimes, their comedy carnival entries, and latterly for their musicals, with proceeds from their shows going to island charities and good causes. This year, the chosen, chosen charities or the Alawite Food Bank, the Way Forward Program, the Alawite Donkey Sanctuary, the Alawite Bus and Coach Museum, and MADED. The strollers will also be donating their 14th defibrillator to the island. The show promises plenty of laughs for all ages, and a wealth of singing, dancing, and chances to boo and cheer from start to finish. There are five performances across February, the 10th, 11th, and 15th, and ticket prices have been frozen this year. Tickets are available to book from Medina Theatre. And we now move on to letters. And this first one is from Hans Bromwich of Cows. Dr Bob Seeley, CBE MP, has voted in Parliament against an amendment that sought to improve a National Health Service dentistry provision across the country, calling it a gimmick despite dental problems being the number one issue young children attend A&E for in the UK. The Conservatives and Bob Seeley have had years to fix National Health Dentistry, particularly for young children, but have done absolutely nothing. Sounding familiar? We know precisely what Bob Seeley thinks of our most vulnerable children on the island when he voted to stop their free school meals over holidays. Perhaps he thought if they don't eat, their teeth won't rot. So what is Bob Seeley objecting to? We're told that gentle issues, dental issues among young children are commonplace across Europe, with the exception of Sweden and Switzerland, who interestingly experience no such problems. So what are they doing that's different? In school, between the ages of three and five, children have a short session once a week showing them how to brush their teeth. Woke? Nanny state? Who cares? The trust is some parents in the UK are clearly not educating their children, hence the problem we have. Introducing a short tooth brushing club for young children once a week wouldn't cost much, particularly when set against the cost of kids turning up an A&E for dental treatment. Why vote against it? 
unless, of course, you're always prioritising voting with your fellow party members over the needs of constituents. A common theme, Mr Seeley? That said, hopefully a swift extraction during the forthcoming general election will see the problem gone. I know who I'm not voting for. A letter from Paula Winthrop of Godsill. Dear Editor, Perhaps I have totally unrealistic expectations, but I expect a little bit more than just honesty from my Member of Parliament. I am referring to the article entitled Member of Parliament refuses to say what he did to help secure funding. I also expect competence and accountability. Sadly, I find all three Honesty, competence and accountability are in the short supply when it comes to not only Bob Silly but also the Conservative Party, which is why I shall be voting for, some, for someone different when the general election comes around, although I have not decided whom yet. And this one is from Ian Brown of Ride. Having seen the proposal by Ride Town Council to purchase the redundant National West building in Lynn Street, um, Isle of Wight Council, January the 12th, I had a couple of questions for the Finance Committee meeting held on Tuesday the 23rd of January, which I attended as a curious Ride resident. RTC want to purchase the National West Building by the taking out a 30-year loan to be funded by Ride, president, uh, Ride residents via an increase in the RTC element of council tax. First, I asked why RTC have agreed a purchase price of £426,000 when the asking price was £375,000. I was surprised that the Finance Committee Chairman, Councillor Phil Jordan, didn't know. Eventually, Councillor Simon Cook piped up and told us it was a sealed bid process. What? The Nash West building is empty, dilapidated and would require serious work before it could produce a return on investment. Bidders would be expected to go in lower, not higher, than the asking price for this type of property. I then asked why RTC's general project consultation, which is available to view on their website, states that the cost of the purchase, legal fees and necessary improvement works is estimated to be approximately 466000 This is untrue. That figure does not allow for any improvement works. Having seen the Council's proposal build plans for the building, the improvement works must be well in excess of 200,000. The answer given by the clerk was that £466,000 is the amount the Council are proposing to borrow to fund the purchase and that they haven't had the improvement works costed. And finally, we must defend others to save ourselves. A letter from Andrew Day of Yavelin. Dear Editor, I was made to feel quite sick that two opinions in last week's paper seemed to think we should give in to terrorism. The Iranian-backed Houthis have attacked international 
merchant shipping in the Red Sea. And we should just ignore them and go round the Cape of Good Hope, costing large ships an extra half a million to one million dollars per leg and extending the trip by up to 30 days. Source from the simple, simplechaindive.com If anyone targets our shipping, we must respond and remove their ability to do so. As for the silly hyperbole of suggesting that in giving military supplies to Ukraine, we will be left with a hanger at the back of, of the cupboard. Munitions have an expiry date and weapons are constantly being updated. Therefore, to give other munition, older munitions that will not be used and will have to be destroyed if not used within date, and replace our own stock with new, and to give older weapons with which we can and will replace our stocks with more modern arms built by British companies, putting money into, into the British economy only makes good sense. We cannot allow the Russian leaderships, which should have been declared a terrorist organization, to simply roll their military might into a European sovereign state to steal their land, targeting hospitals, schools, power infrastructure, kidnapping children, torturing prisoners of war, etc. We must continue to support Ukraine however we can. If Russia is allowed to keep the land they occupy illegally, the Baltics will be the next. And then it will not just be arms and munitions. It will be our troops as part of NATO being sent to fight. So with that, we'll say goodbye. I hope you have a good weekend. At least it's a bit warmer. So goodbye from Imelda. And goodbye from Gerald. The BBC In Touch programme follows and the scaffolding news follows that. BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. Good evening. Welcome to this special edition of This Week with me, Tim Wilcox, in Chile, where one of the most amazing rescue attempts in history has taken place. The whole world has been gripped by the story of the 33 trapped miners underground here for more than two months. And we'll be finding out later why one of those gripped by it, an in-touch favourite, has pursued it in an eight-year project which came to fruition at the weekend. Intrigued? Well, stay with us. But first, a project which we thought had come to fruition almost exactly a year ago, when we believed we were in a position to reassure listeners that if they wanted an accessible in-home smart meter display, they had a right to expect it from their energy supplier. The reassurance was necessary because we'd been receiving for quite some time a lot of complaints from blind and partially sighted people who wanted to be able to monitor their energy use but were finding that often the people tasked with fitting those bits of equipment were turning up with the wrong inaccessible equipment or that some companies denied all knowledge that there was such a device. But by mid-January last year, after researching most of the big companies and having received further assurances from them, we felt confident enough to uh, say that the problem was solved. And yet the complaints have continued. 
admittedly now more of a trickle than a flood, but still coming, including one from David and Chris Ferguson, who had been dealing with uh, one of the companies most adamant that they were on top of this situation. We're going to be talking to Octopus in a moment, but first, Chris Ferguson joins me. Tell me about the problems you've been having, but first, why you wanted one of these pieces of equipment in the first place. I first heard about this equipment on the InTouch programme last January, and I do have sight impairment. And when I heard about them, I thought that would be really good. I want one. And um, I started the process last January. And unfortunately, I believe we had four visits from various engineers. I must say they were all subcontractors, but we had at least three. And I think today was the fourth visit from an octopus engineer. They brought the wrong device or said it wouldn't fit the meter outside. So I wasn't very happy. So we had a long trail of telephone calls, emails, assurances, and unfortunately had to escalate to a complaint. And in that time, you've had, (laughs) what, reassurances? I mean, what kind of things were Octopus saying to you? Because presumably you got in touch with them. What was being said? Yes, I believe I started it with a telephone call, but then it came into emails and it was, yes, we can do this, this isn't a problem, and an engineer would come with the wrong one and he'd say, well, I haven't got one. And we'll order one, so I'd get back on and be another email or telephone call. And I was getting a lot of assurances that they did supply this, but they just didn't have them in stock. How long were the gaps between these various attempts that you made? Oh, months. Um, Unfortunately, I haven't got the full trail, but it has been months in between. And usually an engineer would leave and I would send another email to say, well, you know, it hasn't happened again. Um, or we'd have a telephone conversation and I got a lot of assurances but unfortunately nothing materialised for a very long time. Were you tempted to give up? No, (laughs) I don't give in easily as anybody that knows me will tell you. Mm. No, I don't give in but it's something that I wanted and I felt I should be able to get quite easily. They were due to turn up this morning so we took a gamble. What happened? This morning a very nice octopus employed engineer called Matty. He arrived uh, just before nine o'clock as promised and by 9.30 the device was installed. He had instructed me how to use it. I now know how to use it and he left and that was all done within 30 to 35 minutes of him arriving. So the service in the end was brilliant. Unfortunately, it just took such a long time to get there. Right. Well, by then, of course, Octopus knew that you were (laughs) coming on this programme. It might have had something to do with it. Yes. Whether it's coincidence or not, we're not quite sure. But yes, the following day, my husband got a telephone call to assure them that they were on it. Well, listening to all that is uh, Rebecca Dibbs-Simpkin, who is Octopus's Chief Marketing and Product Officer. It's not good enough, is it, that, Rebecca? No, I mean, I've got to be honest, we didn't cover ourselves in glory there. No, Chris is absolutely right. She chased us for some time. We messed up. We have nearly a 1,000 engineers who are directly employed. All engineers should have on their van an accessible IHD. There was a problem at the beginning of the last year with supply, but they should all now have one. In some areas of the UK, we do use subcontractors. And so the engineers, some of the engineers who were sent were from a subcontractor who did repeatedly turn up without one, which isn't okay because that's our problem, not Chris's problem. Um, And we have now distributed an accessible IHD to every single engineer, whether they work for a subcontractor contractor 
or not. What we also find is that we put a huge amount of focus at Octopus on general accessibility of our website. So a lot of visually impaired customers will use our website, which has been built in responsive design. So actually will respond to anything that you set your browser or your device to do, screen size, contrast, all that kind of thing, which is how a lot of people access um, information about their energy usage. What is the situation now and what guarantees are you prepared to offer on air to our listeners that this couldn't happen again? All of our engineers do hold an accessible IHD on their van. I mean, we could have a situation where someone went out and had two jobs a day where one was needed and they might not have the second one. I think all we can do is make sure that everyone has one, make sure that everyone is trained in in how to install it and apologise for this issue and promise that we'll do our very best to make sure it doesn't happen in future. Just one other thing. I mean, there are other problems we as blind and partially sighted people face with energy companies, you know, finding someone to talk to about any difficulties rather than just being uh, referred to websites, long waits on phones, for instance, having communications like uh, bills or statements in an accessible written form. So we aim to answer the phone in under two minutes and you'll always get put through to a real live person so we don't have a complicated IVR, press this one for meter readings or this one for bills. We've just been awarded the which recommended supplier for the seventh year in the row for our customer service and we do really pride ourselves on making things easier for all customers to contact us whether they have a visual impairment or a disability or not. So, you know, I would hope that this is very much an unusual edge case in the service that we like to offer. Christine, are you a satisfied customer now? I am now, yes. Uh, Unfortunately, it took such a long time and I don't have anything against Octopus as a company. As Rebecca says, they are good at customer service, but it's just actioning the precise issue that I brought up. Well, of course, this is not just an issue for Octopus. We would like to continue to hear from people who want to get one of these devices from whoever their supplier is. Do tell us how you're getting on. We will try to deal with it for you. You can email in touch at bbc.co.uk or leave a voice message on 0161 836 1338. Chris, Rebecca, thank you both very much. Thank you, Peter. Now, unless you're very young, you must remember this story. The cave-in happened on August the 5th. The disaster here in the desert left 33 miners trapped under tens of thousands of tonnes of rock more than 600 metres underground. Drills were brought in to try and probe to see if there were any survivors. Then, 17 days after the cave-in, sounds were heard down one of the boreholes and when a video probe was sent down, a face could clearly be seen. Finally, in the early hours of Wednesday morning, news came that the world was waiting for. The Phoenix capsule was lowered down the shaft and one by one, the 33 trapped miners came to the surface. The first one up was Florentio Avalos. Well, the world applauded that astonishing rescue in Chile back in 2010, but one person, very well known to In Touch listeners, did rather more than applaud and has been engaged with this project for the last eight years. Cheryl Gabriel worked with me for around, well, I think it was about 25 years on In Touch, first as reporter and for the last 20 or so as producer. 
we're bound on a programme like In Touch to allow our own enthusiasms to influence uh, what we put in the programme. And one of Cheryl's, undeterred by her partial sight, was for photography, which has led to her project to photograph the miners who endured that extraordinary experience of being buried for almost 10 weeks. Well, Cheryl's project came to its climax over the weekend in Chile. Cheryl, first of all, lovely to have you back on the programme. Hola, Peter, (laughs) as they say over here. (laughs) It's lovely to be back talking to you. Can we start at the end of this story rather than at the beginning, which I'm sure as my producer you wouldn't have allowed, but what happened at the weekend? Just set it up for us. Well, I arrived in Chile about a week ago and uh, travelled to Copiapó, which is the Atacama Desert region where the San Jose mine is located. And I wanted to meet with as many of the miners as I could to bring them the book that I have made during the past eight years with them. And on Saturday, we all met and then I did a little speech in Spanish. And I basically said to them what the project meant to me and I thanked them very much for having faith in me. I presented them with their books of the pictures of 32, actually, of the 33 of them, which I've taken over the last eight years in three visits to Chile. What was it about this story that so captured your imagination? Well, I've been thinking about this. I'm quite fascinated by human experience and, if you like, sort of difficult situations where people are in a stressful situation. And I think it's because I put myself, try to put myself in that situation and then get really, really worried about it. And the miner's story was the first such experience for me when I realised how obsessed I was and how worried I got about the fact these guys were underground. And as each man came out, I was just more and more elated. And it's one of those rare stories that actually had a happy ending and where all of them were rescued. It just got me. I just felt absolutely riveted. And and I said to my mum at the time, I just want to meet those guys one day, you know, and take their picture or something, not really thinking it could become a reality. As you say, it's one thing to have a dream. How did you actually turn it into a reality? I can't quite believe I have, Peter. I can't quite believe that this day has actually happened. But in 2015, it was the fifth anniversary of the rescue. And I heard a broadcast by Gideon Long, the BBC reporter, who was based in Chile at the time. And I thought, hey, I'll contact him just on the off chance. And I arranged to meet him. He was fortuitously in London on leave at the time. And we met for a coffee. And I said, Gideon, I've got this crazy idea. I want to meet these guys. What do you think? And he said, "Uh, yeah, I can put you in contact with Jimena. She's a a logistics person and a fixer in Chile. She'd be the ideal person to help you. And then I was off. I was on my way. Jimena is the most extraordinary person. And at the time, I spoke no Spanish, not like about three words. And I heard her on the phone to these guys because we borrowed Gideon's contacts book and Jimena knew some of them herself anyway because she'd worked on the rescue herself. And she just talked to these guys and she persuaded and cajoled. And I thought, 
God, she's a genius. And each one who agreed to talk to her and let me go and take their picture was just like, it was a, a moment of euphoria, honestly. And what was their attitude to your project? Did they understand what this lady from England was doing there? Well, I couldn't really believe that because they were used to lots of people trying to contact them and get things from them. And they're very used to saying no and very used to people trying to sort of do them over and, you know, take advantage of them and do things that they then didn't benefit from. And I think they just saw me as this slightly eccentric person. (laughs) You know, I had my little magnifier that I would use to check the settings of my camera because I use a manual camera. I didn't make it easy for myself, let's be honest. But I set my camera with my magnifier and check the levels and everything. And uh, they just accepted it. And I think they did look at me slightly oddly, but they did accept that I was, they could tell I was quite emotional with them because I hadn't got anything else to offer other than my emotion. And they could tell that I really did genuinely want to do something for them. And as you say, they'd been used to being photographed by all these people, journalists, a lot of them. What were you trying to do with your photographs that you thought hadn't been done before? I wanted my photos to be the pictures that the world had never seen of them before. So I didn't want the normal media type of pictures with their sunglasses on and their, you know, helmets and hard hats and dirt. I wanted them to be as they are now, living their lives, hopefully quite healthily, most of them. Not all of them are in such good health, but, you know, showing them alive and well and now. And that's what I've achieved, I hope. Just explain what are the challenges of this kind of project for someone with a visual impairment? (laughs) (laughs) Where do I start? Where do I start? Obviously, Pete, the journey itself, the travelling to Chile. I mean, it was quite bizarre the first time I got on a plane. I have to be honest. I thought, what am I doing? Because I was going to a country. I didn't speak the language. I was going to meet a woman I'd never met before in my life. I was carrying all my photo equipment with me. And what am I doing? Mm-hmm. To meet men we might not even meet. It was an adventure. It, it has been an adventure of my life, actually. The way people responded to me and using my magnifier was indifference. People just accept the fact that I can't see and I use this little gadget. Nobody else really takes any notice or asks me about it. Or, But, yeah, they're very inclusive, actually. They just take it for granted and just include you in whatever is going on. But there's no, they don't make you feel odd. I've, I've been made to feel worse in England than I have over here about being visually impaired or more uncomfortable, shall I say. How's the book being greeted? Well, it's a kind of, that was the, one of the, your questions was, what did I want to achieve from the pictures? I wanted to actually give the, the men a keepsake that they would hopefully love and be able to keep in their families. So it's a sort of a limited edition book. We're not going to sell it. It's far too complicated to deal with money in the miners. <laughs> I'm not doing that. So it's a gift to them. And they loved it. I mean, they, I'm really, really thrilled that I could see in their faces that they did really appreciate it, actually. And that made me very happy that I could keep my word to them and keep my promise. I said I'd come back with a book. And although it's taken eight years, I have achieved that now. And I'm, I'm chuffed, actually. This last question is one I should probably have warned you about, but you know what I'm like. Is there a moment in this whole saga which stands out for you? I couldn't really pick out one thing, but I do remember being so overwhelmed that one of the miners, Claudio Acuna, 
met us first thing in the morning when the sun was coming out and his photograph has been taken with a huge long shadow behind him against the the hills of the Atacama. He told us that he had travelled the whole night in a bus to get here to be photographed. And I was really touched and moved by that, actually, just that he would do that. He didn't know me from Adam, didn't know really what the project was about. I don't think any of us knew what would happen and whether we'd be able to achieve this. Also, another brother, Renan Avalos, who is the brother of Florencio Avalos, he travelled as well, similarly, in another night bus to be with his brother at the house. And then I have an amazing photograph, which I think is quite unique, of both brothers together. And they're not often together. So that was pretty special for me as well. Cheryl, it's a, a brilliant story now we've found you again don't leave another six years i think is all i can say (laughs) (laughs) Uh, it's been a a great pleasure and a thrill actually to be back on the program i have to be honest thanks pete okay well that's it for today i can't follow that so i won't from me peter white producer fern lullum and studio managers simon highfield and amy brennan and cheryl goodbye goodbye everyone Scaffolding and skips news for a week commencing the 29th of January. Newport area, Key House, Key Street, 7 High Street. Ride area, Nationwide, 3 St. Thomas Square, Cross Street. Overbank, Upper Green Road, St. Helens, 2 St. Thomas Square. Sewing Shop, 72 High Street. Job Centre, 150 High Street. 8A West Street, 9 St. Thomas Square. Ride Skips, 24 Ray Street. Cows Area, 30 Albert, sorry, Alfred Street. East Cows area, the Barracks, Guard House, Albany Road. Ventnor area, Cliff View, Hamborough Road, 2 East Street. Boots Chemist, High Street, 29 High Street. Shanklin area, 73 Regent Street. Yarmouth area, the Bank House, the Square. Shopping Mayhem, a letter from Ruth Timperley of Freshwater. I had a similar experience to the correspondent last week, County Press. I packed my shoppings at the car, so I just had my shoulder bag on the trolley, which the till operator asked me to put on the conveyor belt. I asked him why, and he said it was policy and pointed to the notices which I had not seen before. I reminded him that even the police have to have reasonable cause and asked if he did have that. He said it was optional and admitted they did not like asking and had been subject to verbal and threats of physical abuse. I declined to let him search my bag and my purchases were put through without further issue. I too contacted Aldi and suggested they employ store detective so they can stop people 
as they have as they leave the store, if they have reasonable cause to suspect shoplifting. This blanket policy is wholly unacceptable. Dear editor, I couldn't help but notice the great and the good all lined up to have their photos taken and printed to celebrate their achievement in getting Cow's police station opened. It seems to have been forgotten that there already was a perfectly good one in existence before the existing political regime took over. It was that regime's cuts that led to the station closing. Three hours a week is surely totally inadequate, and to claim this as successful achievement only serves to make these people equally inadequate. Frankly, it's pathetic, and the sooner these people are gone, the better, thinks Les Rayner of Ride.